Well, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. We will be looking this evening in Judges chapter 7, and you can find it in your pew Bible on page 206 and 207. Hear now the reading of God's holy Word. Then Jerubal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the king, or the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let them return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you. I will test them for you there and anyone of whom I say to you. This one shall go with you, shall go with you and any one of whom I say to you. This one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, every one who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets. And he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down, so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel, God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout, for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. 
When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah toward Zerah, as far as the border of Abel-Meholah by Tabith. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh. And they pursued after Midian. And Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. And the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you say that you are the great shepherd of the sheep and that your sheep know your voice. And so we would ask this night, might you speak and those whom are yours, might they hear and follow after you. And all for Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you've been with us, we're not just in a series on the book of Judges, we've been talking about Gideon, and you saw the sermon title and you thought, how original, of Faith and Fear, part three. I do promise we'll finish Gideon next week, Lord willing, and we won't call it part four, we'll call it something different, but perhaps you're wondering, what kind of introduction can we provide for Gideon? We've, we've heard two, and the most succinct one I can provide for you is, well, it's from a comic strip. Charlie Brown, it was done several years ago, and Charlie Brown is talking to Lucy, and what he tells Lucy is he says to Lucy, Lucy, I feel inferior, and Lucy replies to him, oh, don't worry about that. Lots of people have that feeling, and Charlie says, oh, really? You mean that they are inferior? And she says, no, that you're inferior, That's something to be said when we talk about Gideon. We've been talking about a man who, yes, there are glimpses of faith, but we often see his fear. And we are reading about weakness and yet strength. Gideon's weakness and yet the strength of God. And perhaps maybe you can recall that wonderful verse that you and I love to cling to in times like this from Paul. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We love that verse. We love to claim it, but perhaps when we're doing so, what we're hoping for is comfort in mere sentimentality. What Gideon is doing here is he's putting teeth on that. What does it mean that when you are weak, God is in fact strong, and that his grace is in fact sufficient for you and for me? So we have two points. They're not going to shock you our weakness, and God's strength. We've come to the 
scene of Gideon, perhaps that you and I are most accustomed to. Your children, I'm sure, are accustomed to. It's that battle scene with Gideon's 300 men. And it demonstrates, at least in description, it's a, well, it's a story of an underdog. And we love underdog stories, don't we? Perhaps you love them when we're talking about certain sports. And when you see those whom aren't supposed to win become victorious, or perhaps you love to see them in war. Yet, when we talk about an underdog, nobody wants to cheer for it when it comes to your life and mine and faith. You see, we want to always know what is next, and we want to know what's going to happen and how we can be assured of things. We never want to know that we're not in control and we have no idea what will happen. We do not like, in fact, being the one who's in the role of underdog. But that's what we're reading in Gideon. We're here in chapter 7, and, and it is dismantling all of them, isn't it? It is dismantling the leader, Gideon. It's dismantling the people. It is showing these people are not prepared for this fight you know, if there was an election in Israel, there wasn't. But nobody, including Gideon, would have voted for him. It begins with this leader, Gideon. He asked questions, and you've heard about them. Are you sure, Lord? I, it can't be me that you're asking for. I'm from the least tribe. I'm from the least family. Heck, I am the least in my family. You can't be looking at me to do this. You must not know who I am. And then you remember he destroys Baal at night because he's afraid of his family and of his fellow countrymen. And before we've even finished Judges chapter 6, multiple times Gideon has asked the Lord, I know that you say this, but could you just give me one more sign that you mean it? That in fact you're telling the truth. This is Gideon. That's the one who's supposed to lead the people. This is the one whom we've already read who's been filled with the Holy Spirit, who has seen a, a, a pre-incarnate Christ. And he's saying, Don't don't pick me. I'm too weak. And so you're probably accustomed to this pattern now, aren't you? Here's our problem. The people have been oppressed and they're going to cry out and God's going to rush in with a deliverance. Except for that's not what we read about right away in Judges chapter 7, is it? When the scene has been set and you would think here comes the battle, there's a whole lot more narration before we get there. More information needs to be given that we might understand. We have a leader who is unfit to lead. And so, what do we find? He's gathered some people, 32,000. And God doesn't say, good job, Gideon. Great recruiting. No, he says, actually, there's too many. And you can imagine Gideon's thought. Maybe I didn't hear you right. You didn't say too many. There's, there's not enough. We don't have enough to go against the Midianites. We need more than that. It's this battle scene 
Maybe something Lord of the Rings style, Return of the King with, with Rohan. He, he, the army's right there and they're, they're entirely encircled by the enemy. And here's Gideon and the people of God and they're saying, look around. They are as numerous as the sea on the seashore, the sand on the seashore. That's how many are here. What are we to do? Don't, you're not sending them home. You're gonna call some more, right? God says, nope, twice actually. You have too many. And did you see the first qualifier? How do we determine who should be here? Those who are uh, afraid. Aren't you surprised Gideon didn't raise his hand first? Those who are afraid, you go home. And then there's this other test about how you drink water. Now, just for a moment, I I need to address one thing. Perhaps some of you read these kind of stories, and I want you to know that there are some, well, there are people who have books that shouldn't have books. How about that? There are plenty of people who want to draw a position on, you know, the reason why God selected those who lap the water like that is because they were really the courageous ones ready to fight. They, they had an eye out looking for the enemy, and so they were looking out while they were drinking water. The other people were just too afraid. Guys, that's foolish. There's nothing in the word of God that is pointing you to think how you drink water demonstrates how courageous you are. If you use your water bottle at the water fountain versus if you push the button. It doesn't make you courageous one way or another. That's not what God is doing here with these people. The 300 is Well, it's not meant to say Gideon got the 300 he wanted. Here's my 300 Spartans and we're ready to fight. We've got them all lined up. No, you already understand it, don't you? The reason why there's 300 is it's not to be a picture of their strength, but of their weakness. We are, in fact, weak. That's that's their condition. Maybe they felt weak. It doesn't matter if they did or didn't. Their condition is they are weak. They do not have what it takes to win this fight. Isn't that the Christian life? This fact that we are weak. And it's at those moments that we can recognize it's not just that we are weak. Actually, no, then we're prepared to say that God is in fact Strong. It doesn't mean when you say I'm weak that I'm some kind of pushover, that I have no conviction, but it's to say before the Lord, I've recognized I am, in fact, nothing. I don't have anything to boast in, I don't have anything to rest in. It's not about me. And Gideon is experiencing in real time what it means this temptation to walk by sight. You know, sometimes we have that saying, strength in numbers. But here, it's not strength in numbers. It's strength in number. It's just one. It's not the size of your army that matters. It's the size of your God. Who is your God and how strong, in fact, is he? God is reducing every single external support that Gideon and the people of God have so that they might trust him, that they, in fact, might lean on him over and over and over again. 
And God is encouraging Gideon. And yet now he tests him. And perhaps Gideon is going, I'm not prepared for the test. And that's when we begin to trust the Lord, isn't it? We say, your thoughts are not our thoughts. Your ways are not our ways. Your purpose is not our purposes. What you're looking at with Gideon and the people, well, our natural tendency is we are a self-protecting people. We don't want to be weak. We do whatever we can to walk by sight to the point that we might in fact trust ourselves or our methods. And Israel is a very powerful picture of that. They demonstrate a picture of what it means to trust in yourselves and your methods. They would have been good church-going people. They would have gone on Saturday, but for the sake of argument, Sunday, they would have gone to church. They would have checked that box. I've, I've done what I was supposed to do. Except Monday through Saturday, they would have looked to the ways of the world to help them rather than trusting in the Lord. We always want a quick fix, don't we? Rather than a steady, slow faith in the Lord. We don't tend to look to him, but to the world. And I think that's what Gideon's being confronted with. Gideon, who do you trust in? Where does your confidence really lie? Do you trust me? Will you go? You know, the story's a little humorous, isn't it? When they recognize that they're way outnumbered, and you see what the Lord is doing, God has already told Gideon why I'm going to shrink your army down. I'm shrinking it because, well, you're going to be tempted to say, you did this. You had a great plan. You executed it perfectly. What does the Lord say in verse 2? The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand have saved me or has saved me. That they're prepared to say, it's not the salvation of the Lord, it's, it's the salvation of Israel. Israel has figured this out. We know what to do. It's our work, not yours. And so God has dwindled them down to 300 and it's not the ones that Gideon would have picked. It's Israel's marching band. They've got trumpets in hand. They're going outmanned, outnumbered. And all they have is a battle plan that says, we're going to serenade you to death. We're going to play these musical instruments and hope something powerful happens. Now, unless you have children who are just starting out to attempt music like that, you don't know what being serenaded to death sounds like. But here's Israel showing you this is all we got. We've got some trumpets. We've got some empty jars. We got Wonder Bread provisions. This is not MacGyver, so don't act like that. It's not like they're going to put the bread in the trumpet and somehow come up with some explosive device. It's exactly what it sounds like. These people are utterly weak and they have no chance at winning. And they've gone out to fight. And if that's not enough, God says to Gideon, what? If you're afraid, you know, God didn't even finish that sentence, did he, before Gideon said, yep, 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 I'm me. 
But he gives them an invitation, doesn't he? Gideon, if you're afraid, take your servant Purah. Go into the camp. Give it a listen. See what they're saying. It's the kind of imagery that Jeremiah talks out. What is Jeremiah saying? Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, the mighty man boast in his might, the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Gideon, you, you don't know what you have on your side. Go on into the camp and find out who is on your side. You will have nothing and no one else to boast in. And you see, why is Gideon so quick to run? Because we don't so easily rely on God, do we? We don't tend to rely and and swim in the promises of God until we have nothing left. You know, I think that's something of what Paul does in Romans chapter 11. He's been talking about sin, his sin, the sin of the Gentiles, the sin of the Jews, the sin of all individuals, how depraved you and I, in fact, are. And he comes to this point in understanding that the person and work of Christ redeems us. And then he comes back to the people of Israel. We have not followed in the footsteps of what God has called us to, the covenant of what it means to follow hard after him. But before he can get to this doxology, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, he has to first recognize, I don't have anything. There is nothing else for me to lean on. I've looked, I've tried, and it's, it amounts to nothing. But I have the promise of God that for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation. I have his word. And I have his son that assures me that his word is in fact true. Doesn't this open our eyes? Doesn't it show us our natural tendency? We want to steal glory from the Lord. We don't want to find ourselves in need of a promise of God. We want to believe that I've got what it takes And so I think God will dwindle you and me and all of Israel down of every measure of external support they have to demonstrate his promises are sufficient enough. I am your very great reward. Your perceived power means and amounts to nothing. We are weak. Yet when we are weak, God is strong. It's not because of their power, but of the Lord's power. How do you see the power, the the strength of God? You can see it in His sovereignty, can't you? You can see it in promise. You can see it in patience. And we talk a great deal about sovereignty, and we should. We must be reminded that there is one who is over all, that nothing happens apart from his allowing it. It's everywhere. The ultimate victory spells out and confirms the theme that God is in fact in control. 
God gave Gideon a pathway to search out his fears. You don't believe that I'm telling you the truth. Go on into the camp with Purah. Go give it a listen. Find out. And this was not like some, hey, let's gather around the fire and roast some marshmallows. This is not a fireside chat. Gideon has just walked into the enemy's camp. How do you know that God is sovereign? Because somehow Gideon walked into the enemy's camp. And he's close enough to hear them talk. This is not a Navy SEAL. It's Gideon. If there was a way to stumble in, he would have found it. And he's right next to the enemy, listening. And what is it that he hears? God's going to do something. God's at work. How do you know it? Because it's not Gideon who's confessing the sovereignty of God. It's the enemy. The enemy is confessing that God is in fact going to defeat them. Now why they still fight, I have no idea. They've just confessed they've lost. But Gideon hears it and therefore is enabled to worship where else do you see the sovereignty of God? They don't just hear this fire, this, this chat of the enemy, the result that God's going to work. There's a watch. Most would say somewhere in the ballpark of 2 to 3 a.m. It's pitch black dark. There's gonna be a, a changing of the guard. And, and so you've got some soldiers there. They're kind of like spies. They're, they're looking out. Do we hear anything? Do we, do we see any of the enemy? But at the changing of the guard, they're gonna go home or to camp to their tent to sleep. And, and here comes the new guard. And what happens? A jar gets smashed. Now, you didn't think that was very powerful until you've been at home one of the little nice plates. It just takes one, right? It hits the ground and everyone in the house hears it. And some of you are probably like already shaken up as soon as you see it falling because you know the noise is gonna be loud. Or perhaps you've been in the restaurant and you feel so terrible for the waiters and the waitresses when they drop the tray and it's like nobody wants to help them. You just feel bad for them. And here's this shattered glass everywhere. Imagine 300 jars being shattered to the ground. And what do they see? We've got the guard looking out in the distance. They can't make out what's coming, but they see bodies carrying weapons, and they fight. And then what do we learn? They killed their very own. They fought against and killed their very own people, not knowing don't you see the beauty of this story? The theme of weakness even in victory. What do you read? Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. What else do we see? But he kept Israel standing still. The army had only 300 people and they weren't even enough. They didn't do anything. They stood still. Salvation from beginning to end is of the Lord. He is, in fact, in control. This doctrine of sovereignty, how comforting it should be to you and me.
Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says about it. There is no attribute of God more comforting to his children than the doctrine of divine sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe troubles, they believe that sovereignty hath ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. There is nothing for which the children of God ought more earnestly to contend than the dominion of their master over all creation, the kingship of God over all the works of his own hands, the throne of God, and his right to sit upon that throne. On the other hand, there is no doctrine more hated by worldlings, no truth of which they have made such a football, not the sport, as the great stupendous but yet most certain doctrine of the sovereignty of the infinite Jehovah. Men will allow God to be everywhere except on his throne. They will allow him to be in his workshop to fashion worlds and to make stars. They will allow him to be in his almonry to dispense his alms and bestow his bounties. They will allow him to sustain the earth and bear up the pillars thereof or light the lamps of heaven or rule the waves of the ever moving ocean. But when God ascends his throne, his creatures then gnash their teeth. And when we proclaim an enthroned God and his right to do as he wills, with his own, to dispose of his creatures as he thinks well, without consulting them in the matter, then it is that we are hissed, and then it is that men turn a deaf ear to us. For God on his throne is not the God they love. They love him anywhere better than they do when he sits with his scepter in his hand and his crown upon his head. But it is God upon the throne that we love to preach. It is God upon his throne whom we trust You see, believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, what a comfort and confidence you can have in life when God is, in fact, on his throne. You don't need him to be everywhere else. You need him to be on his throne. And if he's on his throne, he is everywhere else. For he is the creator of all things. We see God in strength and his sovereignty, but we see it also in his promise he provides a promise even in the past tense in verse nine. I'm going, or I'm, I've done it. I've delivered them. I've, I've handed them into your hand. It's already been decided. It's, it's been decreed. This will take place and nothing and no one can change it. Did you know when you're reading this story three times, deliverance is promised to the people. Verse nine, it's from God. Verse 15, it's from Gideon. And as we've already noted, verse 14, it's from the enemy. What is he saying? It doesn't matter who you ask. I've promised. I'm going to do it. And it will, in fact, happen. I think it helps us to understand the passage in Hebrews chapter 11. You know, Gideon surprisingly shows up in the hall of faith. You're sometimes scratching your head how he got there. But he's there. You can see him in verses 32 through 34. And there's this little phrase. After, after the writer has named some of the judges, he provides these phrases. And you're not always sure, who are you talking about? What are you meaning here? But there's a phrase, and I'm all but certain he must be talking about Gideon. This is what he says in verse 34. Some were made strong out of weakness. Doesn't that describe Gideon? When he recognizes how weak he is, he sees how strong, in fact, God is. He has provided promise. When you consider your life, when I consider mine, 
good times, hard times. We must remember the promises of God. He is the one who has promised us that nothing and no one can snatch you out of my hand. I have you, I hold you, and I will not let you go. In fact, actually in Isaiah, he goes as far as to say, you are mine. I've promised it to you. You are mine. You are my treasured possession. Peter helps us. You might be sifted, but you cannot be stolen because you are the Lord's, bought with the blood of his own son. He's sovereign. He is giving us precious promise. And if that's not enough, doesn't he show us how patient he is? Look at Gideon's life. From beginning, I won't say end because his life's not over, but as his life continues, he's allowed to be afraid. Even though he has been given assurance after assurance after assurance from the Lord, and yet he continues to move along in fear. And nowhere in Judges do we find God saying, you're such an idiot. Get it together, Gideon. You see his patience and his kindness as Gideon is trying to work through his fears. He's consistent in his fears, but God is consistent in his patience. It seems to me that that's what Gideon needed. This weak and shaky faith of Gideon needed the patience of God. God knew what he was going to do, but he let Gideon learn to trust him over and over and over again. He's patient, and Gideon begins to show some measure of courage. In fact, even to the point of where you might say, we see his faith, the faith of Gideon. How do you see that? Because faith begins where sight and sense ends. Now, hear me correctly. Faith begins where sight and sense ends, not where reason ends. Reason is not opposed to faith. Reason is not against faith. Faith is opposed to reason that says, I trust in myself. Faith is opposed to reason that says, I stand at the center and whatever I know or whatever I think I can discover, that must therefore be the case. Yes, if, if that is your definition of reason, then yes, faith is opposed to that. But faith is not opposed to an objective truth that says, this is who God is. This is what he has said he has done, what he is doing, and you can see it can watch it work its way out. No, see, that faith is honored. That reason is honored because of its grounding in objective truth. And so you look at Gideon and you say, there's no good reason for Gideon to think that he's going to win. He's down to 300. He knows the enemy is countless. And so he does some little math except for he doesn't do math calculated by sight or sense. He demonstrates some faith, doesn't he? Would you take the odds of Gideon when you see the enemy that like that? Would you take his odds? I think that's why David provides that helpful verse in the Psalms. 
What does he say? Your word, O Lord, is what? A lamp unto my feet. You know, David didn't think of Georgia football game stadium lights lamp. That's not his image of what he's saying. He's saying there's, there's a flicker of light in front of you and it gives you just enough to know which direction to go in. It doesn't show you everything. You can't see all sides. You can't see everything, but you can take a few steps. And then there's a little bit more light. And then there's a little bit more. He gives you just enough to trust him and to follow him. That's the faith that we need, isn't it? The faith that says, I believe your word, O Lord. That it is, in fact, a lamp unto my feet. It's meant to be an encouragement, isn't it? When we're going through trials and tribulations, how do we grow through them rather than just go through them? What do you do with the fact that you and I are weak and God is, in fact, strong? How do you make sense thus far of Gideon, this character? I think you and I need to learn God will bring you to the end of yourself. He will bring me to the end of myself. And it's a good thing because at the end stands a mighty cross and you can cast your cares upon him. You you see what he's doing, don't you? You ask the question, what must one do to be saved? And you can form no list of accomplishment. You can form no list of achievement. You can form no list of ability. You must say, I'm weak. I can't do it. But Jesus can. You can have your eyes fixated on him. And that's where the impossible becomes possible, isn't it? Because now strength in number is on your side. God himself We need our faith cultivated. And in fact, if we're going to have our faith cultivated, it normally means it's going to be tested. You've heard that illustration. It's like a muscle. How do you grow muscles? Some of you aren't asking that for yourself, but how do you develop muscles? You stretch them. You you tear them that they might be built back up stronger. It's the same with faith. You and I need to be stretched in our faith. One thing I hope you'll see with Gideon is he might overturn your view of Christianity and especially what it means to be a leader. That you don't need to be some go-getter, some overly confident, highly gifted person. The pattern in Judges is, no, it's weak people. It's poor people. It's people on the outcast, the outside, they don't have anything to offer. They just make themselves available. And doesn't the Lord work mightily with those kind of people? Might you and I, might we be a church who would remain available, therefore faithful to the Lord? Let me pray to that end. Our God and our Father, I think if I'm honest, I'm, I'm a bit afraid myself. I don't know if I want to have a, a full, accurate view of the enemy to be told, 
what you're trusting in, Danny, is not going to work. It's, it's too many. That you, in fact, might bring me to the end of myself, that I would learn that you are enough. But help us, O oh Lord, that when sight and sense ends, we might have faith grounded in truth that you are the sovereign Lord, patient to your people, providing promise. And in Christ, all of them are yes and amen. So help us be a people who are willing to say we are weak, but our God is strong. And some of us might need to be told very abruptly how weak we are, that we might be saved by the very strength of God found in the person and work of Jesus. And so stretch us, O Lord, that our faith might grow, that we would be a a better picture, a church that loves your word and therefore proclaims it. Help us to long and love the Lord Jesus, that our strength comes out of our weakness and we would boast only in him. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.